This sermon is going to be different. Uh, I usually preach verse by verse through sections of Scripture. However, I hope that this uh, broad view topical sermon transitions you well into the following sermons. So with that said, how would you summarize math for someone? Uh, Maybe math is the science of numbers and how they work together. Right. Uh, But very basic. Maybe you would summarize addition, subtraction, multiplication, uh, division, but that's still pretty basic. Math is algebra, geometry, uh, calculus, trigonometry, logic, number theory, and more. And summarizing math clearly and concisely is difficult because of its vastness. Theology is a vast science because of the vastness of God. I must admit, when it comes to covenant theology, I feel a bit like I'm trying to summarize math. Uh, There's a lot to covenant theology. Like math, the deeper you delve into it, the more powerful and helpful covenant theology becomes, but also the more opportunities there are to be confused. Um, The rationality and beauty of covenant theology are not always immediately clear. Uh, But the more you study it, the more profoundly beautiful and helpful it should become for you. Friends, subjects worth studying are most often multifaceted. Uh, But I want to encourage you that even a little bit of covenant theology can go a long way in uncovering for you more of God's beauty, grace, and faithfulness. The basics are good. They will profit you, but the deeper you go, the better, and the more rewarding it will become for you. Why think about God's covenants? Simple, to know, adore, and worship God. To know, adore, and worship God. See, God has revealed himself in words, in doctrines, in truths to be believed, and covenants are central to how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Now, you may love nature, but but nature cannot tell you of the love of God. God reveals himself specially and redemptively through words, through covenants, including covenants. So then, if you want to know God as he truly is, And know him deeply if you want to delight in his fellowship. Knowing something of his covenants is essential. Last year I preached 17 sermons on covenant theology. You can access them on our website. I think that might help you. I began to lay out the basics of covenant or reformed theology. And today we come to yet another biblical covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. The covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. The Mosaic Covenant builds upon the other biblical covenants. So I'd like to recap where we've been. The big picture of covenant theology. Now my family is watching the the BBC series uh, Planet Earth. Uh, It's it's pretty spectacular, the the filming that that they have. Uh, Earth is spectacularly beautiful. And there are so many things to see in, in, on this earth, and yet the earth is also stunning from outer space. Uh, today, I want to take you into outer space uh, to show you covenant theology from a distance. 
And then next week, I want to enter the atmosphere again and gaze more closely at the mountain range of the Mosaic Covenant, where I hope to show you God's sovereign and amazing grace in greater detail. I said in my first sermon, my aim in this sermon, or in this series, is to show you that God's sovereign covenants are the key to understanding Scripture. Many Christians struggle to fit the pieces of Scripture together uh, because they don't understand covenants which unite the parts into one whole, one beautiful whole. Renowned theologian J.I. Packer said, quote, the gospel of God, the word of God, and the reality of God are not properly understood till they are viewed within a covenantal frame, end of quote. Pastors Michael Brown and Zach Kiel add, Covenant theology is not an abstract system imposed on the Bible, but the very structure and framework that naturally arises from Scripture in itself as the drama of redemptive history unfolds from Genesis to Revelation, end of quote. So understanding some basics about covenants helps you read the Bible as one cohesive story of redemption. Brown and Keel continue, covenant theology is the Bible's prescribed method, the Bible's prescribed method of helping us interpret the scripture properly. Covenant theology helps us to deepen our understanding of God's salvation of and communion with his people through the person and work of Christ. It is God's way of giving us the big picture of his plan of redemption and showing us that his word from beginning to end is consistent and not contradictory. Covenant is Scripture's method, God's method of helping us interpret Scripture. Tracing the theme of covenants through Scripture helps us know God and how He relates to us, His beloved people. Now, oddly, some Christians treat the Old Testament as if it's strange and cryptic and disconnected from the New Testament, and ultimately irrelevant to life today. It's very foolish. The Old Testament sets a beautiful foundation upon which the New Testament is built, and Christ is the center of both Testaments. God reveals himself to us in both Testaments and uses both Testaments to inform our theology and shape our relationship with God and the family of God, covenant being a central theme. If we as Christians dismiss the Old Testament and focus all of our attention on the New Testament, we will misinterpret and misapply the New Testament. And we will make many mistakes in piety and in practice that could have otherwise been avoided had we taken them together. We need both Testaments, both covenants to know God and His glorious Christ. God gives us one glorious story of redemption revealed in Genesis through Revelation. And at the center of that entire beautiful story is Christ. Christ. Christ is the central message of the covenants. The, the purpose of covenant theology is to see the beauty and glory of the person and work of Christ in all of Scripture. The old covenant and the new covenant, for that matter, is not primarily about the nation of Israel and Middle Eastern real estate. It's about Jesus Christ, the true and perfect Israel and salvation found in him alone. 
So let's keep looking from outer space. Covenants in Scripture are important because they reveal to us God's sovereignty. God is sovereign and possesses complete and absolute supremacy and efficacy in and over everything. God has a good plan. God is working out his good plan. Nothing can thwart God's good plan. And at the center of that glorious plan is Christ and the redemption of those united to him by faith. God's sovereignty is in the covenant uh, is central, rather, to covenant theology. God's sovereignty is central to covenant theology. And that, dear brothers and sisters, can comfort and assure you in 10,000 different ways. Covenant, it's huge. Now here's more of the big picture of covenant theology. God is one. God is three. God is relational. Amazing. Covenant theology champions a triune and relational God, and God, a God who enters into relationship through covenants. The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word, his self-revelation to his people where he reveals who he is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for us. Covenant theology derives from a careful study of God's self-revelation. Covenants being a big part of how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Now, let me define covenant again, just so we we know what it is, and then review three prominent covenants. A covenant is a solemn bond between two or more persons. Uh, We could add a covenant is formal and legal, yet intimate, an oath-bound commitment that binds people together. John T. Rhodes defines covenant as an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. That's the definition of a covenant. Now, here are three prominent covenants in Scripture. Number one, God's covenant of redemption. Number two, God's covenant of works. And number three, God's covenant of grace. First, God's covenant of redemption is an inter-Trinitarian covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made before the world began. That's very important. It is the triune God's blueprint of salvation. To put it simply, the Father designs redemption The Son accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption to God's people for the glory of God alone. God's eternal covenant of redemption is played out in history in the two following covenants. Second, God's covenant of works is the covenant God set up with Adam in the garden. Do this and live, don't do this and die. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works in which life was promised Adam and in him to his descendants on condition of perfect and personal obedience. Well, in Genesis 3, Adam broke God's covenant of works and his sin and guilt corrupted humanity and folks, it corrupted the whole universe. It threw everything into chaos. 
Adam and Eve's penalty for breaking the covenant of works was death and destruction. People die. Have you ever thought about why people die? People die because God's covenant of works was and continues to be broken. And God still demands perfect obedience from everyone. That has not let up. But third, God's covenant of grace is the gospel. In the wake of their horrific sin and guilt and condemnation, God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's God promising to send a serpent-slaying seed and savior to rescue his chosen people from the curse of the broken law through a brutal cross and miraculous resurrection. The covenant of works is law. The covenant of grace is gospel. And the law and gospel are threads weaving through the story from Genesis to Revelation. Brown and Keel explain, the covenant of grace is the one covenant through which all believers are saved. It began in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise to send a savior and runs through redemptive history until Christ's second coming, end of quote. The gospel, the precious gospel is preached from the garden until the return of Christ. And it was preached with progressing and increasing clarity and detail from the garden to the apostles' completion of the New Testament. Brown and Keel offer a critical and helpful clarification. They continue like this, although the covenant of grace has been administered differently during different epochs of redemptive history, its substance remains the same in all periods. In other words, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the way in which God saves sinners is always the same. By grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Christ is the one mediator of the one covenant of grace that unifies the one people of God in all periods of redemptive history. Now that last line is extremely important to understand. Christ is the one mediator of the one covenant of grace that unifies the one people of God in all periods of human history. Israel is everyone united to Christ by faith. That being said, the administration of the one covenant of grace looks differently in the old covenant than what it does in the new covenant. God was kind. God was so compassionate to make a covenant of grace in which he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring them only faith in Christ and promising the Holy Spirit to them who makes them willing and able to believe. Glorious. Adam and Eve heard the gospel in the garden, but not in its fullness. God chose to reveal more and more of the gospel as he unfolded his story of redemption in history. We call this progressive revelation. God revealed more and more of the gospel as history progressed to Christ. The, the Old Testament church looked forward in faith to, to the cross and resurrection. 
promised them in the serpent slaying seed and savior. And the post-resurrection church looks back in faith to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Messiah. All the saints of history look to the promised serpent slaying seed and savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered sin, Satan, and death. And will, this is such a great promise, restore all things for the glory of God. In the covenant of grace, God promises, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And that is achieved by Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace and received by faith alone. But there are also sub-covenants to understand. Covenants that express and advance the one covenant of grace. One devotional explained it like this. God showed mercy to his chosen people and purposed to save them through a covenant of grace. Through the administration of the covenant of grace, God fulfills the covenant of works for us and grants us the favor that we could never earn ourselves. This covenant of grace is unfolded through a succession of smaller sub-covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally Christ. The devotional goes on. The covenant of works is still in effect, even though we cannot perform its requirements. This and the fact that the covenant of grace has many sub-covenants tells us that God's revelation is progressive. He does not tell us everything at once, but he unfolds his plan for us over time. Moreover, his successive covenants are not corrective to earlier ones. Rather, they explain and add to earlier revelations. For this reason, we assume continuity in God's plan. We assume continuity in God's plan. Unless we are told otherwise, the stipulations of the earlier covenants are still to be carried out by us. End of quote. So, the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants are gracious covenants that progressively unveil more details of God's one covenant of grace. Think, think of it this way. Think of an artist uh, revealing his beautiful painting by slowly removing the veil until all of a sudden it's in full sight, in full view. You see all the painting. Okay, progressive. In the gracious Noahic covenant, God revealed his common grace for all living things. God graciously uh, pledged to preserve and sustain the earth, the whole earth, uh, and life, so that the promised Messiah could come and achieve redemption. Rainbows remind God of his covenant promise to all of creation. God revealed more gospel in the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. God saved Abraham out of paganism and graciously promised him a good land, a great nation, a great name, and blessings for him and his covenant family. God promised Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we know that the gospel is for the nations. That's exciting. The gospel is for the nations. God promised Abraham land, but not ultimately Middle Eastern real estate, but heaven itself. Heaven And God promised Abraham's offspring 
or promised Abraham offspring, a son from his own loins. God even promised kings shall come from you. God's promises were for Abraham, his offspring, and as Galatians 3.16 confirms, God's gracious promises to Abraham were ultimately promises to whom? Christ. We looked at that in the Galatians series. They were promises to Christ and to his church, those united to him by faith. Christ and an eternal heavenly land were promised to Abraham, as Hebrews 11 confirmed. Confirms, rather. The covenant of grace was made with Christ, the mediator, and all those throughout redemptive history united to him by faith. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. The Abrahamic covenant gives more detail to the covenant of grace or to the gospel. The Abrahamic covenant is essentially the covenant of grace. And there are God-ordained signs and seals of this covenant of grace that signify God's promise. And they do something else. They assure believers. Circumcision in the old covenant dispensation was the gracious sign and seal of God's covenant promise of salvation in Christ. And baptism in the new covenant dispensation is a gracious sign and seal of the same gospel promise in the same covenant of grace. One covenant of grace, two dispensations, two differing administrations. Now, where are we headed and what's the connection? All right, my next sermon series will be on the gospel of Matthew. I'm excited about getting into Matthew. And Matthew begins his gospel with two big covenant connections. He begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why on earth would Matthew begin his gospel like that? All right? Son of David, son of Abraham. And then he lists an extensive genealogy of names. Why would you begin explaining the gospel like that? Well, Matthew unquestionably, without a shadow of a doubt, connects Jesus to the promised Messiah in both the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants. Matthew uses covenant theology to identify Jesus of Nazareth as the promised serpent-slaying seed and Savior anticipated from the garden on. And he had come. I mean, Matthew's exciting. It tells us about the Messiah. And so covenant theology then brings depth and beauty to the gospel of Matthew. So we're headed to Matthew in a few weeks, so I wanted to return to covenant theology and briefly touch on the Mosaic and Davidic covenants, which hopefully helps bring Matthew to life for you. See, Matthew is a highly covenantal book, so the basics of covenant theology should help you better understand Matthew's gospel, what Matthew is after, what he's trying to say. Uh, Before we unpack the Mosaic covenant, I'd like to make some foundational points now to help you understand and interpret the Mosaic Covenant. So I hope this helps you. The law and gospel distinction and guilt, grace, gratitude. Martin Luther said, quote, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between law and gospel, him place at the head and call him doctor of Holy Scripture. 
end of quote. So this is huge to get the difference between law and gospel. It's essential to our faith. Essential. It is important so that you're able to distinguish law and gospel in Scripture as you encounter it from Genesis to Revelation. Confusing law and gospel has damaging consequences. Damaging consequences. God's law essentially is what he requires of us to love him and others. Okay, God requires perfect law keeping. You know what that means? You have to love him perfectly. You have to love each other perfectly. Go. How you doing? The law, the covenant of works, right? Love and obey God perfectly and perpetually and you'll live. Disobey God at all at any point and you will die. We are all born into sin because we sinned in Adam. Therefore, we are incapable of keeping God's law perfectly. Therefore, justification, as Paul taught in Galatians, as I have tried to pound and pound over and over again, and Paul writes about it in other places, is not by law keeping. That's an impossibility for us. Listen carefully. Christ is the only one who was justified by law keeping. Christ, the perfect one. The gospel is different than law. The gospel boasts of the righteousness and law-keeping of Christ. The gospel says that Christ is the perfect and perpetual holy and righteous one who fulfilled all God's law for us, who crucified Uh, was crucified as our righteous substitute, resurrected to give us new life with God, and salvation is not by our law-keeping, but by faith alone in the law-keeping of Christ alone. For us, the gospel is not a covenant of works. We don't do anything to merit salvation. Rather, the gospel is a covenant of grace where God grants to us salvation in Christ through faith, in Christ's perfect and perpetual obedience to God. The law and gospel are different. They're distinct. But they are not opposed to one another except in regards to our justification. And they are both good. David said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Paul said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we must differentiate between the law and gospel, but we must not malign the law. Then we must allow the law and gospel distinction to inform our interpretation of Scripture. If we confuse the law and the gospel, we will misinterpret and misapply Holy Scripture, which seriously damages our, our, our faith, our life, our church practice. Keep in mind now, I'm, I'm sensitive that you get confused and that you get discouraged with that. No, I'm just sensitive to that. Keep in mind that theology is vast because God is vast. Okay, this is a worthwhile thing to think about because of who God is. All right, don't grow discouraged. Just draw closer. Think about God's good and holy law. Reformed Christians and other Protestants talk about the threefold use of the law. The threefold use 
of the law. Covenant theology explains the threefold use of the law. Number one, the pedagogical or educational use of the law simply means God's law teaches us about God's holiness and about our unholiness. In other words, God's law gives us knowledge of our sin and guilt and exposes our great need of Jesus and his rescuing grace. That's, that's uh, Romans 3.20. God loves us. He loves us through his law by using law to alert us to our sin, guilt, misery, and condemnation so that we will run in repentance and faith to Christ continuing to run throughout life. The law continues to serve this purpose in our life. Number two, the civil use of God's law. God's law graciously restrains evil in society. Here's what I don't mean by that. It doesn't change anyone's heart. The law doesn't save anyone. However, the law does suppress evil by its stern threat of punishment. God loves by communicating threats. Have you ever thought about that? Threats through his law. Number three, the moral use of God's law. This use is only for true believers who are united to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The moral use of God's law is God the Father instructing his precious and beloved adopted children how to love and obey him with gratitude. The moral use of the law is not do this and you'll be accepted and loved. No, no. But rather, do this because you are accepted and loved and because you want to express your love and your gratitude to God. The the moral use of the law is Christ has set me free from the curse of the law. I'm so grateful, I'm so happy that all I want to do is be close to him, to obey him, to do whatever pleases him. And God has graciously given us as a gift, the Holy Spirit, so uh, we could be heartily willing and ready to obey God's good law. Think of all that God has done for you in Christ. Now, this sounds a lot like guilt, grace, gratitude. In the Heidelberg Catechism, Heidelberg 2 asks, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And it answers, first, how great my sins and misery are. You, you have to know how great your guilt is. That's the first use of the law. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. That's the covenant of grace. That's the gospel of redemption in Christ. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. That's gratitude. That's the third use of the law. Guilt, grace, gratitude correspond to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and the law and gospel distinction. All very important. In the first use of the law, the law is a crushing burden. A heavy burden that we cannot bear because the law demands of us what we cannot do. We're unable, incapable. But in the third use of the law, for Christians, for you and me, brothers and sisters, the law is no longer a burden. No way. No. The law is a delight. God's law is a delight to those who truly love God and want to please him. This is what Psalm 119 gets at. Let your mercy come to me that I may live 
for your law is my delight. Do you understand that? Your law is my delight. We, we were crushed by the law. And then Christ came and redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were restored in Christ. And, and then we became compelled by his spirit to obey the law out of gratitude for God's grace in Christ. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Do you understand? Law, gospel, law. Do you understand? Does this make sense? I hope this makes sense. Now, earlier in the service, you heard a lot of Scripture. I think it's great that here at Jerusalem Church, we read long sections of Scripture because we need to know God's Word, and it's precious to those who cherish God. It's not a burden to hear His, his law read. In that Exodus 19 and 20, God gave Moses and Israel His holy and good law at Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with them, the old covenant, which included moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law for the nation of Israel. Though, though the moral law is eternal, keeps going, always true, the civil and ceremonial law were temporary for Israel until the time of Christ. The Mosaic covenant was the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant was a gracious covenant. That's important. It was gracious but it also articulated law. In the time of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of grace was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances. They all typified and foreshadowed Christ and were fulfilled by Christ. The Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel was temporary because it ultimately was about Christ. Now, Israel was unable to fulfill God's law, unable to fulfill his covenant of works. Uh, God didn't set up the Mosaic covenant because he expected Israel to do it all for salvation. That's not what was happening. God knew, and they knew, they couldn't do the law for salvation. That's why God gave them the promise of Christ. And the covenant of grace, which typified, uh, or who was typified, Christ was typified and foreshadowed in the Mosaic covenant. But in the Mosaic law, we have two things happening. Try to hang with me here. Two things happening in the Mosaic law. One, God is restating, to a certain extent, the covenant of works. He's expanding for Israel what it means to love God and neighbor. But, but not to tell them, you will be saved by doing this law. That was not his message. That, that message was communicated in trust in the promised Christ whom I will send you. That's where salvation is alone. But he did this. He, he gave them this statement of law, this restatement, this summary to remind them of their destitution of righteousness and that Christ alone is the way of salvation. Now, this is tricky. So please listen closely. I see the Mosaic Covenant as being a sort of restatement and progression of both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The, the, the Mosaic Covenant is a gracious covenant. It's part of the covenant of grace. And yet it is also a strong statement of law. So how do we make sense of that then, of what's going on in this law and gospel distinction? Though the Mosaic Covenant 
is part of God's covenant of grace, it is a restatement of the covenant of works in this sense. It gives greater detail of what God's law demands. It fleshes that out. What does God's law demand? The Mosaic law tells you very clearly. Okay? It reveals more about how to love God and neighbor. In other words, it's a pedagogical or an educational review of the covenant of works for Israel, telling them once again that God's law demands moral perfection, which they don't have. And they are unable to do the law and desperately need God's grace provided in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, promised in the covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 on. All those burdensome, and, and I, I feel like some of you are probably like me, when you read the book of Leviticus, you're just like, what in the world? Why all of these laws, and they're weird, and what, are, what sense do you make of this? There is purpose behind all of them, behind all of them. Understand what was going on. All those burdensome old covenant laws reminded Israel of their sin, of their guilt, and at the same time, like, you're not holy, God is holy, and at the same time, all of that stuff typified and foreshadowed for them God's rescuing grace in the promised Messiah. Grace, gospel, right there. So how was the Mosaic law gracious? Well, the Ten Commandments reminded Israel of how far they fell short of the glory and righteousness of God. The, the Mosaic Covenant graciously taught them that they were sinners. We should hear that when we hear the Ten Commandments. God's law readied them for Christ, the first use of the law. Paul talks about this in his writings. We saw this in Galatians. And since Israel also had the promise of the serpent slaying son, seed, son, savior, in the covenant of grace, typified in the Mosaic Covenant, as they believed God's promise, his gospel promise, the law was for them instruction on how to please the God that they loved. The third use of the law. Think of all those animals that died. I mean, bloody, brutal, gross, blood everywhere, dying things, all of that. They graciously reminded Israel of their sin, guilt, and misery. But even more, even more than that, they proclaimed to them through types and through shadows the final sacrifice and atonement of the promised Messiah who was coming to rescue them. It was gospel. God has always been throughout time gracious and compassionate to tell us the truth. Now, a type, a type is an event or a person that prefigures a future event or person. The old covenant was filled with types and shadows, bloody sacrifices and rituals prefiguring Christ and his bloody cross atonement. The Mosaic covenant promised Israel Christ. Yes, it restated the covenant of works to a certain extent, not in a salvific way. And yes, it, it was law, but not a law for salvation. It was a law to crush their pride 
and send them running to Christ for salvation. And the Mosaic Covenant also promised them Christ. Christ in types and in shadows. Grace upon grace. God working in the Old Covenant. So now my question is, do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? The the temporary Mosaic Covenant pointed Israel and us to Christ. Don't miss, or dismiss rather, don't dismiss the Old Covenant or separate it from the New Covenant. You can't do that. It's It's not at our liberty to do that. God has not done that. It's one cohesive story. The Old Covenant is an old administration of the Covenant of Grace which beautifully points to Christ. You and I have have failed miserably to do the Ten Commandments. And yet God has provided us the Messiah who has done all ten perfectly. I mean, there is a way to read the, the Ten Commandments and to say, yes, thank you for Christ. He did this. He did this for me. He is righteous. I am not righteous. He is righteous. The Ten Commandments, which are still required of us in perfection, you have to do them perfectly or you will be rejected by God. So that should humble you and throw you to the feet of Jesus to receive grace and righteousness because as you trust in Christ who fulfilled the Ten Commandments on his own in perfection, his righteousness is yours through faith. And then what is demanded to you, Christ gives to you. Justification justification. And the Ten Commandments, they tell you what kind of Savior Jesus is for you. They describe him. Jesus does all Ten Commandments with excellence and perfection. The Ten Commandments do something else. They also give you clarity on how to love and please your Father. Like, what do we do to just tell God that we're thankful? And that we're, we're so grateful for grace and the cross and the resurrection. What do we do? How do we express our gratitude and thankfulness to God? We do the Ten Commandments by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love holiness and righteousness. And we do that because we love God. That, that helps us. Now, because of the Holy Spirit, every adopted child of God finds delight in the Ten Commandments. They're not a burden if, if the Ten Commandments are a burden to you, you don't understand the gospel yet. That Christ has done it. That you're justified in Christ and that the Holy Spirit in you will now give you a new type of life to say, oh, I want to do that and I struggle so much to do it, but God, you're working in me. I'm growing. I, I, I know your Spirit's at work and so I'm going to set out to do these things with as much perfection as I can strive by your Holy Spirit and, and know that I'm accepted and loved as I try because I love you. Um, The Ten Commandments are explicit in how you should love and adore and worship God. Saints, we didn't cover much of the Mosaic Covenant today. However, what we covered will, I think, help you understand the Mosaic Covenant and see the beauty of God's law and gospel in it. We serve a big, incomprehensible God. Theology is vast because God is glorious. Don't be scared off 
uh, when you're challenged to think deeply in areas that you're uncomfortable, like, I don't know that. Well, I'm preaching in that. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know all of this stuff. If uh, You need to be challenged to think deeply, and yet your thinking cannot be detached from your feeling. If theology doesn't warm your heart, and increase your intimacy with God, you have missed the point entirely. You've missed it. What the point is, within covenant theology and within the Mosaic Covenant is a glorious God to enjoy. And He is whom I want you to know. He is whom I want you to enjoy. I preach this to show you Him. None of this None of this theology is to make you academics, but to deepen your love of God and to deepen your gratitude and thankfulness so that you can glorify Him forever, so that you can enjoy Him forever. That's the point. That's that's what I'm aiming for. So you got to hold on till next week, part two, more to come. And my recommendation for you is to study Exodus 19 and 20 until next week so you can get a good hold on where I'm